The um, point here is that um, in philosophy of science, uh, and in some of the sciences, both uh, especially biomedical and social sciences, uh, mechanisms are all the rage, and especially when we're discussing causal explanation and causal inference. Uh, for instance, um, John Williamson and Frederica Rousseau argue that experimental and correlational evidence is not enough. If you want to do solid causal inference, um, you should have evidence for generating mechanisms as well. So now that's something I agree with. I think the more evidence, the better. And I'm never very happy with you know one evidence of only one kind. Um, but the question then is, uh, what's a mechanism? And there are three different senses of mechanism. There are at least three. Um, there are three going the rounds in philosophy of science and, and among the scientists and natural, social and natural sciences I've been working with um, right now. Um, there's actually a fourth, uh, which is a sense that Jan Elster uses in the social sciences that's not very much taken up nowadays. Um, and I'm not going to talk about that because these three have a kind of mutual relation among each other, among themselves. Um, so there are three distinct senses, and they're almost always muddled together. Um, so it's a kind of philosophical exercise uh, to say there are three. Um, okay. Uh, the first is... Um, sense of mechanism is um, mechanisms are relations that are, I'm going to explain it to you these in turn, but there are relations um, that are invariant under intervention um, or mechanism is that should be step by step uh, is a step by step causal process or a mechanism is an underlying structure that affords regularities or uh, okay. and um, the fact that they're muddled together is a serious problem um, because Different kinds of studies are needed to establish mechanisms in the different senses. So you actually do a different kind of evidence production and a different kind of scientific study to get a mechanism in sense one from what you do to get a mechanism in sense two from what you do to get a mechanism in sense three. And moreover, um, there are different inferences and practices that are supported once you know something about a mechanism. So the three different senses of mechanism have different ways to get sort of into attributing that kind of a mechanism. And then once you know there's a mechanism of that kind, there are different um, inferences that are afforded by that. And the problem is that the three senses, a major problem I find in the literature, is that the three senses get muddled together, and then people do science by pun. Right? They establish a mechanism in sense one, and they draw inferences that are only warranted from mechanism in sense three, and there's no connection uh, drawn. I mean, it might be that, in fact, that you know the two the two happen to coincide at this point, but um, without a join between them, you're just doing um, inference by pun, um, you know, calling it a mechanism when it's not really the same thing. So that's why I'm at pains to try and um, distinguish them. Uh, now, uh, the big um, name associated with intervention under the invariance under intervention sense of mechanism is James Woodward. I think it's a kind of funny name for what he means, but you know, I mean I think he thinks of a mechanism as a very stable kind of thing, but he calls it mechanism. And then tons of people are now endorsing the mechanistic accounts and so forth. And they, they mean they think they mean what uh, Jim means, but then they also go on and act as if they mean something else. So that, that's the problem. Um, the step-by-step -step processes, well, we know that in our my field, philosophy of science, um, it's Wes Salmon who was um, really at the time when causation was just 
beginning to be legitimate topic in philosophy again, um, where Samuel was uh, advocated these step-by-step -step causal processes. And uh, Judea Pearl um, is a person you'll see who um, is has a very complete theory of them. Uh, Judea Pearl, do you know Judea Pearl? Yes. Judea, Judea Pearl is a, 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 an electronic engineer um, who's done a huge amount of work on counterfactuals, causal modeling, and Bayes-Nets methods for causal inference. Uh, but he's um, and he deals with mechanisms that can be represented in the step-by-step -step causal processes. Ones that can be represented in structural equations, which I'm going to explain to you. Okay. Then um, underlying structures. Um, well, that's a lot of different people. MDC, uh, so that's uh, Machinar, Darden, and Craver. Um, talk about mechanisms in the sense of underlying structures. Before them, I have advocated for a long time nomological machines, and have only come back to it because I've noticed this science by pun thing that is, you know, I'm desperately upset by, and my UCSD colleague Bill Bechtel. They're all um, uh, advocates of mechanisms in the underlying structure sense. So, uh, now, what I'm going to talk about today is a unifier. I mean, somebody who has exactly the opposite view to mine. I say there are three distinct senses really important to keep in part. And Peter Menzies has recently written a paper um, arguing that um, they, you know, he can unify them, and they should be. So you know, he talks about um, um, he uses structural equations. He calls it and he cites Woodward's intervention under invariance. He then says he's, it's, he's got a structural equations approach and that it describes what a mechanism really is in Craver's sense. So um, he's um, he's uh, he's the person I'm going to work uh, talk about today because um, I okay. So now here's the plan. I'm going to show the importance of keeping the these three senses distinct by looking at Menzies, who self-consciously and deliberately conflates them and argues that, you know, you know here, here's an argument. I'm going to show you how, uh, how you do this. Uh, okay, so that's what I'm going to talk about. Now, Menzies deploys um, an interventionist account of causation to tackle the question of what a mechanism is. In his own words, so he employs the first sense, um, um, invariance under intervention. In his own words, he aims, quote, to show how the interventionist approach to causation, especially within a structural equations framework, which is step-by-step -step causal process, I say, um, provides a simple and elegant account of the causal structure of mechanisms. Now, I have for a long time been an advocate of just the kind of mechanism that Craver advocates, along with Craver's uh, co-authors, McNamara and Darden, and as well as my colleague, Bill Bechtel. And it's just the kind that Menzies is concerned with. And I'm quoting from Menzies, referring to MDC and Craver's uh, and Craver. Uh, a mechanism is a set of entities and activities that are spatially, temporally, and causally organized in such a way that they exhibit the phenomenon to be explained. Okay. Except um, I, uh, in my work, uh, emphasize not the activities of the components, but rather their causal capacities. And I think you've been hearing about that from, uh, from John. Okay, where, quote, uh, the aim of mechanistic explanation is, oh, this is from Menzies, quoting Menzies, talking about Craver again, uh, the aim of mechanistic explanation is to reveal the mechanism underlying the phenomenon. So um, even though he's going to talk about interventionist account, he still talks about the mechanism underlying the phenomenon. 
Now, I make almost exactly the opposite claim uh, to that of Menzies. I distinguish between the underlying structure, the mechanism, which I call a nomological machine, and the surface phenomena that result when the machine operates. The interventionist approach to causation, especially within a structural equations framework, is not, I shall argue, at all well suited to represent the causal regularities that the repeated operation of the machine gives rise to. So, no, I don't think what I've said there is right. The, sorry, I thought that a line in the sentence. Um, the interventionist approach to causation is not at all well suited to represent a mechanism, right, in my sense of a nomological machine, but it is well suited to represent the um, causal regularities that the repeated operation of the machine gives rise to. So, quite exactly the opposite view to Menzies. Uh, Menzies concentrates on Carl Craver's uh, 2007 book, Explaining the Brain. Menzies thinks that um, Craver's account suffers from important omissions. First, it leaves the central notion of activity unelucidated, and second, it does not adequately show how the component entities in their activities um, are, quote, quoting Menzies, or it doesn't show how the component entities in their activities are organized so as to exhibit the explanandum phenomenon. Structural equations that satisfy interventionist criteria can do both jobs in one fell swoop, Menzies argues. So I'm going to sketch how he proposes to use the interventionist um, structural equations to do so. Okay. Then I will explain why I have had a different view from the one Menzies defends. I shall argue that there is something absolutely essential that is still left out. So Menzies thinks that we've left out an account of how the explanation happens and what an activity is, and he can fill that in with his um, interventionist structural equations story. Um, but I think that he still leaves out absolutely something absolutely essential that John uh, talks about a lot, which is the very facts about the components and their organization that are responsible for the machine's capacity to produce the causal regularities we're trying to explain, which can often be well represented in interventionist structural equations. Now, as in his previous, so what's an activity? I want to talk about worries um, about activities. As in his previous work with Menz with McInerney and Darden, um, in explaining the brain, Cravers takes activities to be central to characterizing mechanisms, where, as Menzies quotes, Craver, and now we're quoting Menzies quoting Craver. <laughs> I'm quoting Menzies quoting Craver. Um, where, okay, um, Craver uses, quote, the term activity as a filler term for productive behaviors such as opening, causal interactions such as attracting, omissions such as occurring cases of inhibition, preventions such as blocking, and so on. And the quote from Menzies from Craver. Menzies points out that in the 2007 book, Craver somewhere along the line, adopts Woodward's interventionist account of causation as an aid to explaining causal relevance, whereas MDC, um, McAmer, Darden, and Craver together, uh, quote, endorse Anscombe's remark that the word cause is highly general and only becomes meaningful when filled out by more specific causal verbs, for example, scrape, push, carry, eat, burn. So that's Menzies, um, contrasting the earlier MDC with Craver in 207. Menzies praises Craver for going beyond the, in quote, platitudinous remarks of MDC 
by adopting an interventionist account. I mean, he doesn't, what he says is that it's not clear that Craver just explicitly says, this is how I'm going to talk about activity, but he says, Craver says, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about causal relevance, and so uh, Menzies says, oh, well, you know, this will do for activity. Causal relevance equals activity. Now, Menzies' focus will be on generic causal relations expressed through functionally correct equations like this one, where the effect, and that's the effect, is represented on the left. There are only causes on the right. The equation is supposed to be functionally true, so that the quantities represented by x3, x1, and x2 all relate in that way with you know, the values constants are filled in. And the C equals means not only that the left and right hand sides are equal all the time, but that the expresses this fact that on the right hand side we have causes of uh, an effect on the left hand side. Okay. So the effect is represented on the left, only causes up here on the right. I call equations like this causal principles. Menzies explains, that Menzies has a different vocabulary, but Rather than mixing the two, I'm just going to use mine throughout. And, um, when you read his paper, you just have to make the translation. Menzies explains that these kinds of equations imply, quote, a battery of interventionist counterfactuals. That is, counterfactuals about what would happen if interventions were to occur on right-hand side variables. Where, according to Menzies, quote, roughly speaking, an intervention on a variable, um, say, x1, with respect to x3, so an intervention on this variable with respect to that one is a hypothetical experimental manipulation of x1 that's ideal for determining its causal influence on x3. The interventionist account, then, that Menzies subscribes to is like that of James Woodward in demanding invariance under intervention. So you do, you intervene on the right-hand side variables and the equation continues to be true. And so it's invariant. In order for these equations to capture causal relations correctly, they must hold invariantly under interventions, or in other words, the equations must continue to hold, not, and I'm quoting now from Menzies, not only when variables on the right-hand side take on values in the normal course of events, but also when these variables have their values set by a range of possible interventions. For our purposes, you can just think of an intervention as akin to the miracles that David Lewis uses to determine the truth values of causal counterfactuals. The value of x1 is changed and only the value of x1, leaving unchanged the other causes of x3. Here are the other causes of x3 or x2. You're assuming this is correct. Um, as well as the causal principles at work, except for the little miracle that brings about x1. That's good enough to think of intervention for purposes discussion today. Woodward calls his invariance under intervention account a mechanistic account, and that is mechanism in my first sense. And here we see Menzies making a join between structural equations and invariance under intervention. Structural equations, I shall show, represent causal processes step by step, my second sense of mechanism. So Menzies, like Woodward before him, conflates the first and second sense of mechanism. That, I shall point out, is not too harmful since we can prove that when both apply, the two are coextensional. Well, that is if you take my account of what structural equation system is. None of them tell you what a structural equation system is to take problems. Menzies and um, um, Woodward don't. Um, okay. So it's not too harmful 
since we can prove, as I can prove, that uh, when both apply, the two are coextensional. It is the conflation of these two, on the one hand, intervention uh, and structural equations, uh, on the one hand, uh, with mechanism in the sense of underlying structure, on the other, that I oppose. But this last conflation is just what Menzies defends. He takes the structural equations frame, framework, which I shall explain in more detail in a moment, to be an appropriate way to make precise what a mechanism is. Remember, he already told us mechanism in the sense of the underlying, the underlying structure, the structure that underlies the phenomenon, um, to be the phenomenon to be explained. He does so because he thinks that this framework provides an answer to the question Anscombe, NBC and I all leave unanswered. What all these activities, I'm quoting now, what all these activities like scrape, push, carry, eat, burn have in common that makes them causal. Now my own view is that there is nothing and that that is not a problem. But that's a totally another topic. Um, uh, that's just what many of our everyday concepts are like. They involve a loosely connected set of ideas, different ones of which can be highlighted on different occasions to play different roles from assigning moral or legal responsibility to describing reasons for actions to providing advice about how to repair a system or how to avoid a catastrophe and indefinitely many things you can do with these uh, terms and they get different things get highlighted in different contexts. Often they work like J.L. Austin's trouser words. They get their sense of a context from what they are meant to rule out in those contexts. So the standard thing in the structural equations is you call something causal, you mean it's not a spurious correlation, and I'll give you an example of that. So I think the attempt by philosophers, um, well, my late husband um, said that we philosophers often tend to bring uh, more rigor to a subject than it can bear, and um, I think that's what we're doing when we try to find what um, all these uh, uses of the term cause have in common, scrape, push, burn, etc., what is it that makes them all causal. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy for people to hunt. I, you know, I just don't invest much of my life in hunting. I don't, I don't expect to find it. Okay. Now, a causal structural equation system looks like this. What is a causal structural equations framework? There. It looks like this. So the thing to notice um, is that you see it will be triangular in form. It's triangular in form because um, you know it's um, nothing um, and nothing causes itself. And if x causes y, y doesn't cause x, etc. Um, so the idea is that the equations in the system represent causal principles that hold for a given kind of situation. As I said, effects on the left, causes on the right, and only causes on the right. And the term C equal expresses this asymmetry. To constitute a causal structural equation system, a set of equations must satisfy a number of assumptions. Now this is my characterization of a causal structural equations um, and it just uses kind of minimal assumptions that you, I mean, they woodward people they all write down equation systems that look like this and they'd be shocked if they weren't triangular box triangular in form um, but they're not actually said so here are um, the um, a set of axioms um, the causal relations are irreflexive and asymmetric so that the equations form a box triangular array they are transitive in the sense that, just in the sense that substituting the right-hand side causes of a variable for the variable when it appears itself as a cause, yields an equation in the system. Equations in the set in the system are all functionally true in the situation. 
I mentioned that. And importantly, um, this is the only thing that everyone assumes, but you don't read off from the um, um, you don't read off from the, the, just the, the triangular structure. Um, uh, these causal equations are the foundation or reason that any other functionally correct equations hold for that situation. So that equations that are functionally true but not causally correct are obtainable by linear transformations and substitutions from those that are. This latter is the kind of assumption invoked, so I'll explain that to people who aren't used to jiggling around with these things. This latter, I mean that the causal equations are responsible for anything that's functionally true but not causal that holds, is the kind of assumption invoked when we suppose that spurious correlations, as that between the fall of the barometer and the storm, must be explained by a common cause like low pressure. But this is not <laughs> Sorry. Let's look here at um, the example I want to give. Um, so, um, this barometer dropping, storm coming example that is very famous in philosophers. So, just assume that X1 is low pressure. It's a common cause of the barometer dropping in the storm. So, that's what we see in this equation, right? The barometer dropping causes the uh, sorry, this low pressure causes the barometer to drop, the low pressure causes the storm. And we all know that that gives rise to a spurious correlation. When you see the barometer drop, you see the storm. Okay. Um, and that happens because you can see that if these two equations are functionally true, this equation has to be true. Now, the idea that we see here that every, I mean, the, the reverse of this is that every time you see something that's functionally true it has to be because of the causal equations that's the additional fact that's, that drives and makes the, everybody's work work but they don't say that that, um, that if after all you could just get things like this um, you um, arbitrarily they could just happen despite whatever the causal equations were, then finding correlations could never be a proof of causation. Okay. So, so here we have um, a spurious relation between the joint effects of the common cause. Okay, and it's derived from two proper causal principles. A causal structural equation system is a representation par excellence of a mechanism in the sense of a step-by-step -step causal process. It lays out the causal principles by which each cause, in turn, contributes to the next effect. Look again at what these um, are like. So here we have causal structural, we have our structural equation system. Um, you can see that the system depict, depicts each step in turn. Okay. X1 causes X2, and then X2 causes X3, with perhaps X1 helping as well. Each step in turn. Um, okay. Under the second principle, right, x2 um, and x1 cause x3, and so forth. Suppose then, okay, so this is this just is a representation of the step-by-step causal process or x and y. Suppose then that the correct causal principles that hold for a situation can be represented as a causal structural equation system. Right? It just satisfies the little set of axioms I said. The axioms for such a system, irreflexivity, asymmetry, etc., if you think about that, they provide an informative characterization that constrains the concept of a correct causal principle. It's not enough to tell you what a causal principle is. 
But if you've got a set of them, they have to satisfy these axioms. That's uh, an implicit definition or constraining, uh, constrains the concept. Now, we also, though, have Woodward coming along with his invariance under intervention account. And that constrains the concept of a correct causal principle. Your correct causal principles have to be invariant under interventions. Um, so exactly what is the connection between these two different characterizations? For instance, is invariance under intervention an additional requirement beyond that of the axioms? Um, and if it is, can it always be added consistently to the causal structural equations constraints? And that's just a question that the you know, he just never even thinks to address, which is kind of shocking <coughs> to me. That, you know, you have two different he talks in two different um, totally different ways, and then somehow assumes that they're always consistent. Um, and you, I don't know whether they're consistent, but one's bigger than the other. So now Woodward defends the application of his invariance under intervention account of causation to structural equations by example. Okay, so, um, you know, I said, what's the connection between the one and the other? And he gives some examples of connection. Um, for instance, uh, remember our spurious relation. This, our, this is our spurious relation between um, the barometer dropping in the storm. What Woodward tells us is that uh, if an intervention of the right sort occurs to x2, okay, which appears on the right-hand side, so you change the barometer from rising to falling. Okay. This equation 3, if you intervene on it, this equation will no longer be true. Okay, so when you put a new value for x2, you just, a little miracle, okay, which is just that um, breaking the barometer will not bring on the storm. Okay, so that, that's his explanation. So the, he gives an example where we all know that a, a structural equation isn't invariant under intervention, and that's his argument that that's, a, that's the connection between the two. Now, uh, Menzies provides similar examples to illustrate the invariance under intervention requirement, but it's not obvious that the two different criteria will always yield the same result for equations of the right form. Now, ex so examples like what Woodward does can show, <coughs> illustrate how this works, but they can't show it, and we can do better. It's possible to prove that, oh, sorry, I mean, this goes to show here that um, the properly causal ones are invariant under intervention. That's the other half of his illustration. The spurious one isn't, the other one isn't. Okay. So it's possible to show, let me see, it's possible to prove that if the correct causal principles for a given situation form a causal structural equation system, then it follows that each must satisfy the invariance under intervention requirement. It takes a little making the definitions a little better than Luke does, but it's, it, I can show that. So this shows that the way in which Menzies marries the two in his discussion of mechanisms is entirely justified. If a system of equations of the right triangular form all pass the invariance under intervention test, they will all be causally correct. That is, supposing that the causally correct equations satisfy the axioms for a causal structural equation system. So I went through all that just to, to, to illustrate that you can actually think about these things and sometimes you can even do proofs. Um, so how then does Menzies use structural equations? We've looked at what a structural equation system is. Um, how does he use them to describe mechanisms? Um, he uses the apparatus to explain what a causal mechanism is and what are and are not its constituents. 
and he hopes to do so in such way that the notion of activities is made sense of via the invariance under intervention requirement that ensures that the equations represent causal relations, not mere associations. So it is, it's not a very strong sense of activity. It really is just explaining the, somehow the causality bit of it. Um, Menzies supposes that the aim is to use a mechanism to explain an input-output causal principle describing a causal regularity generated by the repeated operation of the mechanism. So he imagines that what we're doing is trying to explain a, a, a causal principle like this. Um, for instance, uh, for this mechanism, okay, uh, popping the bread in and pressing the lever are income variables for getting toast as an outcome. Uh, so then, what, constitu what constitutes the mechanism? Menzies answers, quote, any variable that lies on a pathway between the input variable and output variable counts as part of the mechanism underlying the input-output relation. Okay, so he's got back to this step-by-step -step causal process. And those are all the variables. So um, what Menzies calls the causal structure of the mechanism, remember in this case, Right. Um, here we have all the variables in between, and you can just substitute step by step, and you can get x3 as a function just of x1, and if you have xn, you can get it as a function of you know, just the earlier variables, and so you can get the input, you could get a final, you can get an input-output relation just by substitution, going down, you can put the, all the input variables in, follow through, step by step, okay, so there we have the input output relation and then we're going to um, we're going to do something like this so here's um, three equations and then you just you know you just use them mathematically so you know you substitute um, into x2 this expression and then you substitute that expression into this one and you end up with the input variable related to the output variable what, what counts as um, the causal structure is these variables in between, every variable in between. So what he calls the causal structure, so any, what constitutes a mechanism, any variable that lies on a pathway between the input and out counts as part of the mechanism. So what Menzies calls the causal structure of the mechanism is a set of equations that first constitute a causal structural equation system and second composed yield the input-output relation to be explained. Um, now, this last, that you, this thing called composition, you just do the substitutions through. This last is what solves the problem that Menzies worries about, of how the mechanism is supposed to explain the input-output relation. Okay. Um, Craver says um, that uh, this is not covering law explanation. If not that, then what? asks Menzies. Menzies answers, uh, is that the mechanism is a sequence of causal regularities that are instanced one after another, resulting in the regular causal connection between input and output that is to be explained. And the causal activity of each stage in producing the next, the producing the next stage, is characterized by the invariance under intervention account of causality, which wouldn't make Peter McInerd all happy. It's not, not a very robust sense of activity, but there it is. So, a... Um, Structural equations are kind of mechanism shows how a mechanism uh, explains the input-output relations it's supposed to and provides a characterization of activity. That's 
and those were the two omissions. So we've now come sort of circle around. Uh, now, um, I shall argue now that, sorry, I'm being so slow. Contrary to Menzies, a system of causal equations that describe activities exercised sequentially between input and output does not represent mechanisms of the kind Craver and others and I have been concerned with. Okay, though it does represent a mechanism in the step-by-step -step causal process sense. <coughs> okay. Is there more to mechanisms than structural equations reveal? Yes. Okay. I have proposed that some more, I have proposed some more serious scientific examples elsewhere, in particular of socioeconomic machines, to make clear that the kinds of machines that generate regularities, the regularities we record in our scientific principles, need not be made of material parts. But here, for the fun of it, I'm going to illustrate with a more lighthearted example that makes the point, I think, uh, very apparent. When I want to sharpen my pencils, I don't crank a handle, as we used to do in school, um, nor do I close a circuit on a battery-operated pencil sharpener. I fly a kite. Okay? Now, I can do it that way because I have a very special pencil sharpener designed by Rube Goldberg. And that's it. That's my pencil sharpener. We can represent the input-output relation from my Rube Goldberg machine in the form that Menzies suggests. So there we are. Uh, actually, this should be uh, this should be a, um, a, a C here. The um, kite line is the input, and sharp pencils are the output. And it's a causal relation. Um, okay. S and K are two valued variables, right? One for pencils being sharp, zero otherwise, except for one for kite flying. Okay. Now, let me tell you about the causal structure of this mechanism in Menzies' sense. Okay. Um, well, that's a set of causal equations. So, causal structure for him is a set of structural equations um, that get exercised, instance one after the other, to connect the cause, the initial input with the initial with the final output. Okay. So, the kite flying. I'm going to have to keep going back and forth between this and the picture. I should have brought the picture on um, hand out, but. Um, the kite flying pulls open a door. Okay. The open door allows hungry moths to escape from a cage. The moths eat a flannel shirt. Reducing the weight of the shirt causes a shoe to step on a switch. And many more steps, till eventually a cage with a woodpecker under it lifts. Okay, that's way down here. Um, I actually counted the steps. so um, <laughs> uh, And a woodpecker pecks the pencil. So you, you see I'm I've just mapped out the sequence of causal regularities and every time the machine runs these are it's a very solid machine um, and it you know they're instanced over and over and they are the causal sequence of causal regularities that explain the input output relations in Menzies sense. So now we know the step-by-step -step causal process that results in kite flying sharpening pencils but we do not know the structure of the underlying machine that gives rise to the sequence. We don't know anything about this machine. There we are, you've got that sequence of equations. Well, okay, so suppose you want to build a machine that affords the causal regularity that's recorded here. As I said, there should be a sequence there. Um, there are an indefinite number of designs you could produce. I mean, be your own Ruth Goldberg, yeah. Um, Suppose you had a more ambitious aim to build a machine that not only generates the input-output regularity, S is caused by K, but the entire causal structural equation system recorded here. 
You could still build an indefinite number of machines that would have this step, give rise to this step-by-step causal process, uh, connecting the input and output. You'd have to think a little harder. John's very good at this. He can whip some up for you. Um, the machine that Rube Goldberg, in fact, designed is, uh, is that one, you know? Um, the, so let me, let's look at the machine. The kite string, uh, goes under a lower pulley, and then it goes over an upper pulley, um, and it's tied onto a door that slides up and down easily on a fine net cage full of hungry moths. The entire environment is safe for moths. The flannel shirt is attached to a string that runs over a third pulley with a shoe tied on the other end of the string. It just balances the flannel shirt before the moths get to it. The shoe hangs immediately above a switch. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Eventually, a cage is raised from over a hungry woodpecker, allowing the woodpecker to reach over to the pencil and peck it sharp. John's got this exercise now to, to build us another one that's got the same uh, sequence of causal uh, uh, principles in between. This is the information that is still missing, even once we have recorded the sequence of causal regularities that produce the overall input-output relation. It is the reason that I urge that we conceive of two tiers. Right? The underlying arrangement of parts with their associated features, which is what you see here, and then the causal principles that that underlying arrangement gives rise to, and the surface causal principles that are afforded by the underlying structure. Both are causable and causal in some sense, and both kinds of information are important to know. Both are necessary for a full understanding of how the pencils get sharpened, and both are useful for prediction and for means and reasoning. So I'm just going to um, describe that and then I'll be done. First, consider the surface equations. The other day, Lucy, whom Anna knows, and Jeremy and John know, uh, the other day, Lucy was playing games with me. Uh, maybe I better give you a back picture here. Okay. Um, Lucy was playing games with me, and she put her finger on the door. I wasn't watching. She put her finger on the door. Um, to um, Every time I flew, I went out to fly the kite. She knew I would get no sharp pencils then. Uh, let's see. She knew that um, because she could read it off from setting m equals zero in equation two. Um, okay, so if the door doesn't open, okay, um, actually it must be setting d equals zero. If the door doesn't open, then nothing else follows. Okay. Um, and following through the downstream effects. Uh, one day later in the month, the moths were gone from the cage because Lucy had taken them out the night before to see if they were really attracted to candlelight. Now, we knew no sharp pencils that day also from uh, is it equation three. Yeah, here's the one um, where if you um, if there are no moths, that goes to zero, no sharp pencils. Or um, on another day, I couldn't get the kite to fly because there was no wind. And anyway, I was in a big hurry. So guided by 11 and 12, I... Um, I went directly um, to the cage over the woodpecker and uh, lifted it. The point is that all that these are all correct causal principles, passing the invariance under intervention test, and thus supporting a battery of interventionist counterfactuals. Because in each of these cases, what was happening was an intervention, and, and you know immediately Lucy knew I wasn't going to get a sharp pencil because she intervened on one of the equations in between. So, um, and it's so it's really important to know these because they support 
certain kind of counterfactuals. Now, consider instead the underlying structure. One day I flew the kite, but the door didn't open. I had been really cautious against Lucy's tricks and all other such hazards and had locked the machine up well the night before. So I was sure no external interventions had set any of the variables in our structural equations to zero. I knew the machine must be broken and I would have to look inside to fix it. Indeed, uh, the top pulley here had split in half. I knew to check on the pulley because I understood the parts of the machine and how they worked together to afford the causal principles I usually can rely on to get sharp pencils. Or, more recently, I decided I was bored by this machine and would like another one that sharpens faster and more evenly. Okay. So I have been busy reviewing how gears work and trying to figure out how to hook a knife blade to a windmill. The point here is that with knowledge of the parts that compose a machine and how they operate, we know what it takes to repair it. And with ingenuity and knowledge of the capacities of lots of different kinds of parts, we can build entirely new machines, hopefully better than the old. So the last short section is putting it all in one flat plane. Now, you don't have to conceive of machines, of, of mechanisms, in terms of two tiers, as I recommend. You can, for instance, always devise a representational scheme that puts the machine description right into the variables. So you can just, if you really want, and Judea Pro insists you have to do this. Uh, he says if you, um, if there's any information, any more information, it's just you haven't, he says the structural equations are not properly specified. Then what does he mean by that? Well, one thing you could do is uh, you could devise a representational scheme that puts the machine description into the variables. After all, they're just X's. And then you have to ask what quantities that they stand <clears throat> So that flying a kite attached to the door via the pulleys um, is represented by a very different variable, or, I mean, it looks the same, but it's a very different quantity, um, than flying a kite on Christmas Common. But there are dangers that we can avoid if we keep the two-tiered picture firmly in view. Since we can perform the simple operations it takes, and I think people do this, uh, uh, make this problem all the time, since you can perform the simple operations it takes to tell if a kite is flying and to tell if pencils are being sharpened, no matter what mechanisms are involved, mechanisms in my sense, we can lose sight of the importance of the mechanism. And, and in particular, if you, 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 you lose sight of the fact that if you've got it all in one plane and you're just using these very, very uh, thick quantities, for your variables represent very thick quantities, people forget that they're supposed to represent very thick quantities, and they think that they um, represent whatever it is they can measure. That's the point. Um, so um, you lose sight of the importance of the mechanism. This, I think, happens regularly in evidence-based policy. There are now a great many agencies, like the U.S. Department of Education's What Works Clearinghouse, that publicize what works, from education to health to criminal justice to international development, um, and we're going to have five new ones here in the U.K., at fast expense, so we've got to get this right. Um, how do they decide what works? They look at scientific studies where they are all keen to ensure that the studies are of the right kind and right standard to establish a causal connection. So their basis is composed of studies like randomized controlled trials that are well designed to test causal inferences, but they're inferences to causal principles of the surface variety. Um, and then they test those in one or two or a handful of sites. Now, if a causal connection is established between two surface variables, like kite flying and pencil sharpening, 
or more seriously say between hotspot policing and burglary reduction, the cause gets recorded under the heading, it works. Then policymakers are advised to use only policies listed under what works, it works. And this seems to suggest that a cause known to have produced a desired outcome in a handful of settings will work in new places unless something special goes wrong or the assumption that it will work in a new place is the default assumption. But when, as is typical, the causal principles under consideration are surface principles, like my um, 12 equations for the pencil sharpener, when, as is typical, the causal principles under consideration are surface principles, whether it will work in a new place depends on whether the new location has the right underlying structure to support the same surface principles. So you can go back, I mean, you can go here, and you can do, this will pass, Rigor, very rigorous randomized controlled trials. Randomly assign when you fly the kite and when you don't. You get pencil sharps on the days when you fly the kite, you don't otherwise. So whether it will work in a new place depends on whether the new location has the right underlying structure to support the same surface causal principles. But no one says that finding a policy in a what works list gives you negligible reason to use it if you have no information about the underlying mechanisms. That's why I'm so keen to keep the two-tiered picture. You can do away with it. But um, it's very easy when you've done away with it to just write down a bunch of variables, do measurements on them, and then think you found something up that's, um, and you don't need to um, un understand um, that those are surface principles and they're going to hold only where you've got a, uh, the same mechanism. I mean, of course, by accident, you put a John could built. He's going to build Anna, a pencil sharpener just, I mean, that has functions just like mine, but is actually totally different mechanism. Um, but, you know, that's an accident. Okay. Okay. So, um, the two-tiered picture keeps this firmly in view. So then I have just a brief, very, very brief conclusion. Okay. Um, there are mechanisms, like the causal process sense, and there are mechanisms, like those, and it pays to keep them apart. Thank you.